Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran over to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the way, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. As he had passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Have you ever suffered indignity? And I don't mean done something embarrassing where you blush. I'm talking about legitimate indignity where someone treats you with contempt, someone treats you very poorly and for no legitimate reason. You know, there maybe you've worked a job of some kind where you're just by nature of the fact that you are working that job, you're just disregarded. Maybe you've There's a part of your life where you lived in poverty, and just by nature of just not having money, people have treated you very poorly. Maybe there's something about your appearance, your physical appearance in some way, that people automatically have disregarded you and shown contempt for you, even though it had nothing to do with anything that you have chosen to do. There's another kind of contempt as well, which is the contempt that someone can endure because of decisions they did make too. Shameful decisions, things that you've done and that as a result end up causing you to be ill-treated, but it still makes it cut very deep. Those are the types of experiences that people remember for a lifetime when you're treated that way. And for people that carry that kind of pain, 
because of that kind of treatment or being viewed that way, they can, they can have a hard time releasing that or they can feel like that's their identity. But God is not unaware of how you feel and God is not uninformed about what has taken place in your life. He knows the decisions that you've made. And our God, he doesn't spurn. He doesn't snub. Instead, he gives value. He exchanges indignity for dignity. And we see this unfold in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. We actually get to see what God does do. We first see that by looking at the eunuch status in verses 26 to 28 of Acts chapter 8. Now I need to remind you, or at this point, I don't know, I've said it enough times, I may not need to remind you at all, but I'm going to do it, which is that God theologically, you know, the, the, the book of Acts is the beginning of the church itself. Everything has changed since Christ has come. And we know dating all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that the serpent was going to bite the heel and that the Savior was going to crush his head. And so even within Christ's closest confidants, Satan succeeded in doing that, right? One of the 12, he had a betrayer infiltrate the apostles. And so we've watched now this systematic change of what Christ accomplished and how it has grown and expanded the kingdom of God. Because after Judas betrayed Christ and committed suicide, the first order of business at the beginning of Acts was to replace that man and to make sure that the apostleship was whole once again. And then from there, the kingdom began to expand. In fact, at Acts chapter 1, I've mentioned this before, but I want to point it out again. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, what Jesus said was that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to, and to the end of the earth. And so since we know that that's what Jesus is going to accomplish through the church, we see then that the first order of business was to make the 12 whole again. And then after the 12 were made whole, they began to take the gospel message to the Jews. And then from the Jews, it actually spilled over into the Greek-speaking Jews, who there was a division there, and so they were treated differently. And all of a sudden we saw, okay, not only does the gospel message count for um, Hebrew-speaking and Aramaic-speaking Jews. It also, it also includes the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. But then we saw that through Saul ravaging the church and scattering the church, the gospel message actually extends on out into Samaria. So that revealed that the gospel and the church was, and God's kingdom was expanding, not just from the apostleship and not just among all forms of Jews, but it actually was expanding all the way out to the Gentiles as well. Well, in our account today with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we see that there is yet another category of people 
that God is expanding the kingdom to, that the gospel message includes, that goes beyond the Gentiles. And those first categories are ethnic-based than the Gentiles, but now what we're including those that are disregarded and are treated with indignity. The Ethiopian eunuch, you might read when you first um, read through this, might not seem like somebody who fits in that category, who's treated with indignity or someone that is being disregarded. I mean, my goodness, when you look at his situation, it says that um, he was a eunuch, that he is a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and he is in charge of all of her treasure. And there he is, he's riding in the queen's chariot. It seems like life is pretty good for him. But what we don't want to do is think, that he himself is important just because he might have an important job. Having an important job does not you yourself make important. In fact, just the fact that he also gets to enjoy the benefits of having an important job, riding in the queen's chariot, does not make he himself important. Being close to royalty does not make you royalty. You know, an NFL team manager might have access to the entire sports complex for an NFL team. He might have the opportunity to stand on the sideline of the biggest games that that team ever plays. He might be able, he might be on a first name basis with a Hall of Fame quarterback that is involved with that organization. But at the end of the day, he's washing the team's underwear. Just because you have access to people and just because you're near them does not make you yourself important. And I believe that's exactly what we see with this Ethiopian eunuch. And there are a couple of reasons that I think that's the case. The first is that you'll notice what isn't there, and that is his name. Even though he is the main character in this episode, we're never given the name of the eunuch. Now, the queen is not involved in this account in any way, but we know the queen's name. Certainly, we know Philip's name. And we see here, it says this Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And I think this is entirely intentional that there is no name included in this account. Because the point of the account is that the kingdom is continuing to expand and to include those of a lowly estate. And here's the other, and I think even stronger argument for knowing that he himself is not an important person, is that, um, is that he's referred to four more times throughout the story, and every time... He's not referred to as the Ethiopian. He's not referred to as the court official. Each time, he's referred to as the eunuch. It's like that dismissive reference to the help. You know, it, it, you're talking about a guy and a physical characteristic of the guy, and that's his identity within the story. He's the eunuch. Original readers would have understood the, um, 
detestable nature of his position. They were put, uh, eunuchs at that particular time were put in these, in these, you know, lofty positions, but it wasn't because the person was being revered in some way. It was actually because of their physical condition. Some people would choose to make, some men would choose to make themselves a eunuch for the opportunity to serve in these lofty positions. Others were forced into becoming a eunuch. But regardless of how you ended up a eunuch, you absolutely fit into a category that was completely disregarded and suffered indignity. In fact, I don't, it's, it's possible you've heard of Josephus, the ancient um, Jewish commentator, and this is how he wrote about eunuchs at that time. Quote, let those that have made themselves eunuch, eunuchs be held in detestation and avoid any conversation with them who have deprived themselves of their manhood and of that fruit of generation which God has given to men for the increase of their kind. Let such be driven away as if they had killed their children, since they beforehand have lost what should procure them. For evident it is that while their soul is become effeminate, they have withal transfused that effeminacy to their body also. Josephus is writing about, he is making a generalization about all eunuchs. They are to be considered as detestable. And he is also pointing out the fact that they will not have any children. He's even turning it around to the point of saying, it's as though he has killed his own children. That in, we don't think this way about not having children in our culture. That was integral, it was part of the DNA of that culture, uh, was the importance of having children. You know, you read in the Old Testament that, that uh, you know, it can be a curse for women if they're barren, if they're not bearing children. And, you know, the, the uh, uh, other side of that is that, you know, women that are, go without children for a long time and that have a child, whether it's Sarah or Elizabeth, there is great rejoicing. The Lord has looked on my plight and given me this gift. And so in light of that idea of being able to be uh, to bear children and to produce children, to give, to make sure that your name continues on. The idea that someone would intentionally choose to take that away for any reason whatsoever was absolutely reprehensible. So the point is that the kingdom then is expanding to a new class of people, not a class based on ethnicity, whether you're a Jew or a Hellenist or a Samaritan, but to those that are dismissed, those that are disregarded, those that are disrespected based on some kind of life choices. And we have to carry that thought process. We have to carry that picture into this entire account. Because when it says then in verse 26 that an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go, then the reader of this account can know right off the bat that when Philip has this exchange with the eunuch that this is not mistaken contact to be on the road. This would have gotten the reader's attention because God is telling Philip to rise and go specifically to this eunuch. 
And then we see how this unfolds into the eunuch's salvation in verses 29 to 35. The eunuch himself is on his way home from Jerusalem. It says that right there in... uh, Starting in verse 29, the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading from Isaiah. He was on his way back from Jerusalem. So we don't know for sure, but it's entirely possible that, um, that the eunuch was a participant in what had taken place with Pentecost. That's where uh, Pentecost happened, was at Jerusalem. He's coming from Jerusalem. And we know from that account in Acts chapter 2 that a multitude had come together from every nation under heaven and were bewildered because they heard God's word in their own language. So he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now here he is traveling on his way back home and he's reading Isaiah. And we get the eunuch's salvation account. Again, we see in verse 29 that it says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So if you're following this way of thinking, then we know that the the eunuch is carrying a lifelong burden of his physical condition. And he is reading Isaiah, and God is telling, telling Philip, an angel of the Lord tells Philip, Rise and go, and then he specifically tells him to go and meet this man, and he finds him reading out of Isaiah. And of course, it's no, uh, it's no coincidence what it is that he's reading. He's reading, um, you can see it there in verses 32 and 33. Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? This portion of scripture that he's reading from out of Isaiah comes from Isaiah 53, which we refer to frequently as that section talking about Christ being a suffering servant. Now, please picture these things coming together, okay? You've got a man who has been mutilated, who is unable himself to have children, that has absolutely suffered humiliation, regardless of his position of being able to ride in the queen's chariot, has had to suffer humiliation and indignity at the hands of men. And he is in this chariot reading God's word. And he is reading like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. Tell me that would not speak to him that he was led to the slaughter. And then in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? Of course, the face value of the, the, the end of that verse there, where it says, for his life is taken away from the earth, is referring to Christ and the fact that he's going to be killed. But there is more depth to what is being communicated there, which is that there is even more injustice. This is being communicated in a generational context. See there, it says, who can describe his generation, which certainly is talking about 
the generation, the people that he is, that are, that are responsible and are subjecting this person to this humiliation, but there is a generational component in the humiliation and in the injustice. Because when it says, for his life is taken away from the earth, it is also communicating that he was unable, he was killed before he could have any children. That's what the eunuch is reading, is that like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and that his life, to include his progeny, were taken from him. The man who would have been treated as Josephus had described as if he had killed his own children is reading this portion of the book of Isaiah. In light of the indignity of the humiliation that he had to have experienced. We don't know if it involves regret, if he was a participant in the decision to do that. We do know that he was likely treated with detestation and as if he had killed his own children. It's based on all of that then that he asks Philip the question in verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom? About whom? I ask you, does the prophet say this? Can you imagine him riding in the chariot, reading this, having his heart essentially torn out of his chest because he has gone to Jerusalem to worship his God. He's reading the prophet of God, and it's like the prophet is writing about an experience that he himself has endured, and now he must know about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? And then Philip, praise God for verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Now, this, this, this stuff is just phenomenal, of course, that God would expand the kingdom to these lowlifes, as it were, that he would do that at all and that he is also communicating to the people from the New Testament era in the ancient Near East that somebody as reprehensible as a eunuch has the right to become a son of God and he does it in a way that directs, that, that takes away any question by directing Philip to go explicitly to him and that he's reading right here in scripture and now Philip is giving him the good news and we know where he starts because that's what it says Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus, and I don't know for a fact where in scripture that Philip went to continue to tell him the good news, but I think I have a pretty good idea of one place that he went, and I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 56. So this is just a few chapters, that, that quote that he was reading is out of Isaiah 53, but just a few pages or, I don't know, a turn of the scroll, I suppose it would be, for Philip in Isaiah 56. Follow with me as I start reading at verse 3. Keep everything that we're thinking about and, the, and, and who these people are in mind, and imagine Philip pulling this scripture up. For the eunuch. 
Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus, says Yahweh, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and, and does not profane it and holds my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord Yahweh, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Can you imagine hearing that testimony from God's scripture in answer to the question that the eunuch posed about whom does it say this? The eunuch, the, the one who bears the scars and that is concerned about the cultural context of not being able to have children that carry on his name, it all goes away. This is a completely different context. The Lord himself will call you his child. He will build a monument. He will be invited in. He will be included. What's being described here is God's adoption process. Pro adoption process. Whether you are an outcast for reasons that you have no control over whatsoever, whatsoever, or you're an outcast because of things that absolutely were your fault, and for decisions that you made, this message applies to you the same way that it applied to that eunuch, which is the, what the world calls indignity can be transformed and can be traded for what our God calls dignity. He adopts his children. And then, of course, it makes perfect sense then in verses 36 to 38 how the eunuch would respond, that he would respond immediately in submission. Verses 30, starting at verse 36, it says, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So his first response to all of this was to want to obey God. It's, without saying it, it's like, uh, it's like the man that said, what must I do to be saved? Here, the eunuch has been told, this is what you must do to be saved, and then his immediate response is to act in submission to God's command. 
that command that's tied, of course, to the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. That is what Philip is engaged in, and this man's immediate response is, here are some water. Why can I not be baptized? What is preventing me from being baptized? And then it ends with the eunuch's celebration in verses 39 and 40. And I just want to point out as well in these last couple of verses, we have this miraculous thing, right? This, this whole, like, Philip hyperspaces from one spot to another. And, you know, I, you know we can have this tendency to, to, to want to look into that and go, wow, you know, I don't, you know, we don't see the, that exact miracle in some other portion of Scripture. And I suggest that this is continuing to reiterate the very point of the message. Just like in verse 26, where the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go to the south. And then in verse 29, where the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So now what we're seeing is that once God has accomplished this purpose with the eunuch, he is now immediately taken away. So for the reader, then, it's not that Philip has shown up around a group of people and happens on this particular man. For the one that's doubting, who's thinking, but a eunuch? They're going to read this, and and there can be no question whatsoever that God sent Philip for this man and that the kingdom of God is also for those that are disregarded. And then, of course, the result is the celebration. I think the eunuch saw all of this. He experienced all of this in its entirety. He was saved by the gospel message. He responded in obedience to um, being saved by proclaiming his association with Christ and wanting to physically participate in what he had just spiritually experienced, that he went down into the, the grave and came out to newness of life. He was indeed transformed from indignity to dignity. You know, Jesus had the attitude that he was despising the shame. He despised the shame. In other words, he gave no credence. He gave no no attention to the fact that he was being utterly and completely humiliated. And now the eunuch has been given the same gift. A burden that he had carried his whole life of being a eunuch, he now gets to release. He now gets to hand off to his God and say, I don't have to suffer this indignity. The indignity that I gain from man means absolutely nothing to me now because of the dignity I gain as being a child of God. He too gets to despise the shame. And so it begs the question, are there any of you that have failed to repent of your sin and to place your faith entirely on Christ because you think that you've done too much. What you've done is too bad. It's too embarrassing. Or that the greatness of 
the, the, the pain that you've endured cannot possibly be overcome by God. Your decisions have been so selfish, so sinful, so stupid that God can't possibly save you. But the reality is that there is no amount of indignity that you have ever suffered in your life that you have ever endured, even if it's at your own hands, that cannot be overcome by Christ for those that repent of their sin and believe and place their faith on Christ. Christ suffered the greatest indignity so that you can enjoy the supreme dignity of being his child. And for my believing brothers and sisters, this still affects us, I know. We still get weighed down with feelings of indignity in our life because of the way that we're treated by others, or maybe even the way that we think about ourselves. And we have to be careful that we're not thinking about ourselves and carrying around this weight of, of shame or worthlessness or that you're not good enough or that you're not doing enough. I want to remind you of what Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that, here's the so that that's for you, we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. If you, are, if you have repented and you have believed, then you are an heir. You have the spirit of the son in your heart, and you are able with intimacy to cry out to the father. You know, the almighty God, the creator of the universe, the one that sent his son and made it possible so that we can be saved, so that he, for, to, to reconcile those whom he has chosen to save, he is the one that is the appraiser of value, and you have no right to tell him that you are worth less than what he tells you you're worth. And you want to know what you were worth? You are worth the price that his son paid. So you have no right to think of yourselves as less, and you then instead have the duty and you have the opportunity to live up to the dignity that he has given to you. You get to enjoy victory as a member of the family and all the privileges that come with it. You are indeed an heir of everlasting salvation. Pray with me. Lord God, we're grateful that you have created the church, that we can watch how you incrementally repaired, in a sense, the apostleship, then expanded to the Jews, then to the Greek-speaking Jews, then to the Gentiles, and you didn't stop there, Lord. You expanded your kingdom to include those that are vile and detestable, icky people. Thank you, Lord, for including icky people. Thank you that you 
have given us worth, not because we've been made righteous, but because we bear the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us from indignity to dignity. Help us, Lord, to remember our identity, and may you be glorified in us living a dignified life in the name of Jesus. Amen.